to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. John Coates reports in his book, The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything, that a dozen index funds, including Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, and BlackRock, now own as much as 20% of corporate America. The book is published by Columbia Global Reports, and Mr. Coates, who is the John F. Logan Professor of Law and Economics and Deputy Dean at Harvard Law School and a former counsel at the SEC, joins us now. Welcome to our show. Delighted to be here. Are you arguing that just a small number of institutions have required the means to exert a disproportionate influence over the politics and economy of the United States? That's basically right. They manage money for millions of Americans, and they they do it well. I'm not criticizing in any way their financial management. Uh, They're a a great tool for people to invest in a low-cost way, but they've done such a good job. They've acquired more and more assets over the last 20, 25 years that, as you noted, they now own really the largest concentrated block of stock of every company listed on the stock exchange. And while they don't typically reach in and control those companies in an active way, they do have the, the, the key votes whenever shareholders are consulted, and that includes every year when boards of directors are elected at those companies. So people have... Uh have invested in companies like Exxon, Disney, Dell, etc. But since 2000 or so, those companies have increasingly come under the influence of two types of financial firms, index funds and private equity funds? That's, that's basically right. Um, index funds invest in uh, stocks that are listed on the stock exchange. So that's their channel of influence that I just talked about. And then there's another type of fund, private equity fund. They raise money often by borrowing, but also from pension funds who in turn are investing on behalf of millions of Americans. And they take that capital and they buy whole companies. They buy the entire business. And, and some of the most famous companies developed. like Staples, Toys R Us, Neiman Marcus, Michaels, Petco. Dell? You got it. Clear Channel Radio that that, uh, that used to own and has gone through bankruptcy. Lots of uh, radio stations in the New York City area uh, and across the country. Exactly. Um, so if I wanted to buy, if I wanted to invest in Petco, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd have to do it through a private equity firm. And you probably couldn't even do that unless you were very wealthy because they typically only take money from very wealthy people. Actually, they raise most of their money from other institutions like pension funds or sovereign wealth funds or the like. So they're, they're kind of in between. And most individuals don't have access to being able to invest through a private equity fund. And you say right now a dozen financial institutions are involved. Just a dozen? Is this a recent development? It's been pretty astonishing how quickly assets have concentrated in the in the top four index funds and the top four to, to six private equity funds. I use a dozen just because it's a nice round number, uh, but it captures the idea. Both of them, both of those types of funds have grown 
at about 15% a year, year after year for the past 30 years, which is much faster than the economy. And the result of that is they're acquiring more and more of the economy, either through the stocks they own, in the case of index funds, or whole companies, in the case of private equity funds. So don't you estimate that private equity may control 15 to 20 percent of, of the U.S. economy? Wow. That's Yes, wow is exactly right. Uh, one in seven, eight workers in the entire country work for private equity, whether they know it or not. And that growth is continuing. Even even in the current environment in which interest rates have been rising, that puts a little bit of pressure on private equity. But they've still, I think, been able to continue to grow, especially the largest uh, funds. Should we be talking about this totally in a negative way? Aren't they doing a good job of investing for millions of Americans for the long term at, at a very low cost? The index funds, I think, are, as I said, fantastic financial vehicles. I use them. I recommend them. I, for middle-class Americans, there's no cheaper and safer way to invest in the market. And I and I have no real qualm with their financial performance. But, but when you get to a certain amount of absolute wealth and power, that starts to raise a problem all on its own, uh, putting aside their financial capabilities. So you say that index funds do a very good job of investing for millions of Americans for the long term at a very low cost. Is there any harmful side to that? Well, you know, if if you don't worry about a dozen people controlling the entire economy, then I suppose not. Mm. But, you know, just take some of the issues that they have a direct influence over. They Did we lose you? They control... Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. They control policy on climate change because that comes up routinely through shareholders meetings. It came up at Exxon a few years ago and the big index funds basically helped. Yeah, yeah. So those are the kinds of issues that I would worry about, uh, even if they're doing a great job financially. Uh, What about Vanguard? Is that an index fund? Yes. Vanguard was the first. Uh, started in the mid-70s by John Vogel, Mm. and uh, they are still among the top uh, index fund complexes. And what did he have in mind when he was creating it, the late John Vogel? Um, You know, basically, he he wanted to do what Vanguard does, which is to let people um, have a cheap way, very low-fee way of investing in the entire stock market, um, which is the basic kind of product that Vanguard still offers. Um, you, you, you invest in one of their funds, and they don't try to pick and choose companies the way other asset managers might. They don't have any, many professionals who could do that. Uh, instead, they just buy all the companies, basically on a list, on an index. And because they're not trying to pick and choose, they can keep their costs very, very low. And then if you do it that way, financial theory has told us for 50 years, and it turns out to be true over many, many years of real proof, uh, that tends to do better than most money managers. Most money managers can't beat the market on average year after year, which is why Vogel was inspired to offer this product. He, He viewed it as a waste that millions of Americans were paying very high fees to active managers who were picking and choosing and charging big fees for that. So that was his invention. It's done quite well. Uh, That's 
part of the problem, in a sense, is that they have just done so well that now everybody's giving their money to them. Hmm. And at a certain point, financially, that's fine. But politically and in terms of influence on society, you know, I, I can it's just a fact. Historically, the American democracy doesn't tend to love the idea that there's 12 people sitting around. Uh, telling everybody else what to do. And wielding a certain amount of power. Vanguard reports that it participated in 7,500 merger votes over a couple of years, voted no 600 times. Exactly. That's the kind of influence that they can wield. And then if you're a manager of a company and you know that fact, which they do, then you stay in Vanguard's good graces because they don't want them voting against you when it comes time to do a merger. So is there any harm in, uh, in what's happened? This, uh, in these uh, people investing for millions of Americans for long term at a very low cost? So again, financially, I don't is think... Is it a matter of concentration of power? You got it. It's, you know, it, again, if, if all we're interested in is getting that nice return year after year at a low cost, then they're fine and you let them keep growing. But I have already seen, I mean, it's already the fact that um, the Senate, U.S. Senate, there are bills pending to take away their votes because of the power they, they exert. And while that bill probably won't pass, there are going to be more and more efforts to control and shape them. And frankly, part of the reason I wrote the book is because I like what they do financially, and I don't want the political system to crush them uh, in response to the power they're gathering. Uh, and so I kind of want to get people to debate this in a reasonable way so that whatever comes out of the political reaction is going to preserve their ability to keep investing well for middle-class Americans. Well, America right now seems to be very split politically. A group of Republican senators introduced a bill, the Invested Democracy is Expected, or Index Act, that's aimed at controlling how index funds could vote in corporate shareholder meetings. Uh, what are the political implications of that? Or, I mean, why is it just a Republican bill? Well, it, it's a good question. Um, the I think they were principally inspired, as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, by the proxy battle at Exxon, hmm. the oil and gas industry. Which we'll get to in a other. moment. Yeah, yeah. So I, but I think that's why it's principally so far been a Republican political reaction is because the perception, I'm not sure this is entirely true, but the perception is that the index funds are somehow greener than other kinds of money companies. Um, but I will say, over time, I think the political response is going to get broader. So to give a quick example that's more recent, Starbucks had a shareholder battle this past spring about its labor practices hmm. and whether or not it needed to get an independent uh, review of whether it's we're dealing with unions in a fair way. And it's still going on, isn't it? That battle? Well, that battle is continuing. It's going to no doubt be a multi-year battle. But the vote happened back in the spring for the shareholders. And State Street, one of the big index funds, voted in favor of that independent review against the wishes of Starbucks management. But the other two, Vanguard and BlackRock, voted against. 
But there's a place where, you know, Republican-Democrat politics, I think, would be a little different than in the climate space. And yet these index funds really are determining the outcome. If State Street had gone the other way, that vote would have lost. And if Vanguard and BlackRock had voted in favor, it would have been an even more overwhelming victory um, because of how much stock they own. So that's I, so I, you're right. So far, it's Republicans who've been most upset about these index funds. But I think as more and more people realize just how much influence they have, it's going to be a more complicated political response. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is John Coates whose book, The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything, is published by Columbia Global Reports. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So let's talk about that Exxon situation. About two years ago, a tiny hedge fund called Engine Number 1 proposed to put four new people on the Exxon board, Two of them were attached to the sustainable energy movement. Was Exxon okay with that? Uh, no, I <laughs> think to put it mildly, Exxon is not has not traditionally been um, a big fan of the sustainable energy movement, and their initial reaction was quite negative, and they resisted the effort of engine number one all the way to the bitter end. Well, how did they get elected to the board? Well, you know, again, if we'd gone back 20 years, they wouldn't have been. And what changed was index funds. The index funds, uh, the people who run them, were convinced by engine number one to swing their votes in favor of these uh, nominees, three of them at least, three got got voted, and uh, on. And What's sort of amazing about that is, again, 30 years ago, engine number one would have had to go out to thousands of shareholders and at least convince hundreds of them to vote in its favor. But with the index funds getting so big, they really only needed to sway the votes of, again, roughly a dozen big institutions, including the big index guys. And that was all they needed to get 50 percent of the votes to elect the nominees they were trying to get nominated. Um, and so three of them are still on the Exxon board. Um, um, I think this came, frankly, as a shock to virtually everyone who follows corporate governance. Nothing like this had happened before. People knew vaguely that index funds were getting bigger, but they had never quite used their power in this way in this kind of a battle. There aren't that many proxy fights anyway. But in any event, this was a a startling change. Well, engine number one argued that Exxon needed to do more to transition to a carbon-neutral economy. And hasn't Exxon become a lot more friendly to the idea of that transition, especially in the light of global warming? I I do think that Exxon has been affected by that uh, proxy battle in pretty significant ways. They've committed billions of the B to um, carbon sequestration technologies, ways of trying to get carbon out of the air uh, to offset the effects of burning oil and gas. Now, they're still pumping out oil and gas. They're still a major producer. It's not like they've become Greenpeace or anything, but uh, they've, they definitely have shown a greater um, interest 
in in developing uh, energy technologies that will uh, be consistent with a lower carbon future. And and I'm sure right now, if they haven't already, they're looking for ways to spend some of the money that the, the Biden's um, mm. uh, Inflation Reduction Act is putting into the climate area. So I, I think not only did they change the board of Exxon, but they changed Exxon's actual business operations. And that's a pretty powerful form of influence um, to be wielded. I think that's why the Republican senators um, got worked up uh, uh, last summer and introduced that bill. And I think that's why this issue is not going to go away. Well, has it had an impact on other parts of the energy and uh, industry, or was Exxon a unique situation? You know, it, it was unique in some ways. I mean, Exxon obviously is one of the, the big majors, big, big. and they were, at the time, the most, um, well, let's put this, they, they were spending the most amount of money on increasing oil production of the major oil companies. Um, and they were doing it with a lot of financial risk. They, their performance was not good. That was another part of the engine number one argument that Exxon really had been underperforming. And uh, and so yeah, Exxon is that situation. I don't want to say that's going to be happening um, every year even. It's going to be a once in a while type event. But again, other CEOs watch this. And if you have power, you don't need to exert it in a dramatic way all the time. And, and something else that index funds do is they do what they call engagements, they, which just means they call up companies and then they tell them what they think. And if you're running a big company with stock and stock exchange and you know that one of these funds owns five, 10 percent of your stock and talks to the other ones, and they call you up and they say, we really think you ought to be doing X, Y or Z. You're going to take that at a minimum very seriously. And in many instances, you're going to do um, what they want. Now, index funds and private equity are very different investment vehicles, aren't they? How how do they are they different? Because private equity funds make up a large segment of the economy. That's right. They're they're really very different. The reason I'm writing about them in the same book is because they they share some things in common. They they manage other people's money. They're growing very rapidly. They've been growing very rapidly for 25 years. And they're having a bigger and bigger influence over the overall economy and society. So that's why I'm putting them together. But you're absolutely right. They're very different. Uh, private equity doesn't buy stock on the stock exchange. They just buy a company. They'll go to a, another owner and they'll buy the whole company. Sometimes they buy all the stock if it's a public company, but they often will buy private companies too. Um, and they tend to sell them within five to 10 years of taking them over um, or they go bankrupt. They do that some. Uh, and uh, and they kind of specialize in using debt. They borrow a lot of money when they do their investments. That means that they're taking a fair amount of financial risk every time they do a major acquisition. And that's why they, in fact, produce a fair number of bankruptcies. They also tend to lay workers off pretty significantly after doing acquisitions. Uh, and, and then the, the other feature of private equity that's different from index funds is they're designed to be completely unrequired, not required, to disclose anything about what they're doing. 
mm-hmm. as business operators. So unlike index funds, which have to make regular reports, and that's how I know a lot about what we were talking about a minute ago, um, for private equity, they're kind of in the dark. Um, you really don't know what's going on with them unless they go into bankruptcy, at which point that goes into the court system and we can learn about it. But the ordinary operation of private equity businesses is sort of by design, again, meant to be outside of uh, SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, disclosure rules. And um, and that's like part of the business model. They take it out of public view and then run it very aggressively with a lot of debt. And you and say they they that, also, they also do layoffs, and but and they dissolve pension funds. Well, how can they get away with this? How did we come to this point? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, they would say they're just running as aggressive capitalists. Every business and they can they can find and, and buy at a good price. Um, my own view is that they are like capitalism generally, both good and bad. I think they do some good things. There are some companies that are just badly run, and private equity tends to do a good job of finding inefficiencies or excess. They're most famous, perhaps, for in the 80s going after some really badly run companies that had dozens of corporate jets, and they would sell those off, and they would sell off some other assets and make money. But you're right that they're also known for being very aggressive about um, rating pension fund assets or uh, cutting consumer protections or uh, ignoring some safety violations or go down the list. If they can do it cost effectively, I think the private equity model really incentivizes the managers of companies to do those kinds of things on both the good and the bad side. So for me, what's most troubling about all this is, as I just said a second ago, there's no disclosure about it. They're, 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 we don't know what's happening with them in effect until it's too late, until uh, the effect they've already had has bubbled out in, in some other way. Um, I, my own view is they should disclose more, especially if the companies they own and control are very, very large. Uh, and many of them are. And this is part of the story in the book. They're getting bigger. They're getting capable of owning bigger and bigger companies for longer and longer. And instead of reselling them, which is what they used to do, back to the public investors, index funds, for example, they no longer do that nearly as much. Now they just sell them to one another or they sell them from one fund they run to another fund they run. Uh, channeling it around and, and maintaining ownership, again, in the dark for longer and longer periods of time. And as with index funds, I don't think this is um, – I can't prove to you that overall they're harming our, our economy. But I have my suspicions about large chunks of what they're doing, which I can't really test as an academic or as a researcher because they don't disclose much. Hmm. And I, I just don't think that's a sustainable uh, path for them to get bigger and disclose nothing. You say that they're not just accumulating financial assets and performing financial services, but they're also accumulating direct control of companies and having an influence on the way companies function. Um, so that's a mixed bag, isn't it? It, it? it is. It is. I think in the um, healthcare 
industry, for example. There have been some pretty prominent um, private equity-owned businesses that have uh, gotten into trouble because they cut nursing staff or they um, they uh, misreported outcomes going into hospitals and the like. Um, uh, I, I think in some industries where the way we regulate and protect society from business activities is weak or where we depend on professionals to be self-policing the way we do with doctors and nurses. I think those industries are particularly risky for everyone when private equity gets a hold of them because the private equity firms, what they're good at is really pushing risk and really aggressively managing cost. Again, sometimes that's what the doctor ordered, but in the healthcare space, that's a place where you worry. You worry about too much cost cutting and you worry about people whose sole interest is getting a lot of cash out of a company to pay down the debt as quickly as possible. So I do think it's a mixed bag. Some people would like to just completely crush the industry. I'm not there. I, I think the first step would be more disclosure. Uh, let's learn more about what they're doing before we, um, you know, stick a, a rod in the, in the in the spoke, so to speak. Um, uh, but at a minimum, without that disclosure, I think people are going to get more and more suspicious of what they're doing. Well, that's why the word problem is in your title. Um, don't CEOs often have to listen to them even more closely than they do their own boards of directors? When a private Can that be a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's true, and it's both. So um, when a private equity fund buys a business, basically they're in charge. I mean, they'll decide who's on the board at that point, and they often do change the board altogether, you know, more dramatically than the index funds did at Exxon. They'll just do it overnight, and they'll replace everybody. Um, and so clearly the management of that company is paying very close attention to what the private equity fund thinks. It's good when that business, this is probably not that unusual still today, is a family-owned business, it's second generation, maybe moving to third, maybe the family members are no longer as interested in running it, they're not the founder and they don't have the special genius that got the business going. Private equity often will do a good job of taking that kind of a business, trimming some of the fat where the second generation, third generation really hasn't carefully managed things repackage the business in a better way and then resell it. And I, I think they can often really add value in that kind of a setting. But as I alluded a couple of times a minute ago, I also think they can um, get manage it, management to do some things that maybe are not so sustainable, not such a good idea for the long run, run real financial risk. Sometimes that leads to bankruptcy. Sometimes it leads to, to um, uh, bad outcomes for customers and uh, or patients uh, or workers for that matter what if, about when the advisory business is a public company like kkr's advisory business don't they have to, they 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 don't have to report some information about their total scale so the the biggest private equity Firms 
have all gone public, ironically. Hmm. So they have a different ownership structure than the companies that they then control. And they do have to make disclosures because of that. But what they disclose is nothing about the companies they take over, but rather about their advisory, their financial business. So you can learn all about KKR's fee streams and how many professionals it has and, and where its assets are in a very general sense from its SEC filings. But what you won't read about in um, a private equity firm's own reports are is any information about the companies they then put inside their funds. So Blackstone owns the biggest um, college campus dorm company that runs the dorms for lots of colleges all across the country. Um, you won't find any information about that company in Blackstone's reports, mm. um, except possibly buried inside of their revenue numbers. There's the fees from running that company, but it's not broken out at all. And you don't know anything about the rents that they're charging or, or problems, you know, not, nothing that would show up in a typical uh, real estate company's own reports because Blackstone is not running that company as a public company. It's owning it through a fund. And technically, that means there's only one shareholder for that company. It's oh. just the fund. Uh, and that was, you know, that's by design. That's how private equity was set up to, to operate uh, 20, 30 years ago. And they don't vary I from state to state? Nope. This is a federal uh, framework under the Securities and Exchange Laws uh, that Congress adopted. Originally would have required disclosure, but in the 90s, uh, the private equity industry and the venture capital industry did a great job of lobbying, and they got that law modified so that they could get much, much larger without having to make um, those kinds of business-level disclosures. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with John Coates. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the one we're discussing, The Problem of 12, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give in the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And return now to John Coates, who is the John F. Logan Professor of Law and Economics and Deputy Dean at the Harvard Law School. We're talking about his book, The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything. It's published by Columbia Global Reports. Um, now, are you proposing greater antitrust management of index and private equity funds in the companies they own? 
Um, I, I do think the antitrust laws could be um, applied in, in, in new ways. I should say antitrust is not my main area of research and focus. I'm a corporate governance guy. I'm a financial regulation guy. But I'll note, you know, antitrust, when it was started, late 19th century, early 20th century, definitely would have taken on the problems I'm identifying. And there's a certain irony here that the Reagan administration and um, judges that were appointed from Reagan on so narrowed down the way antitrust law in practice works that it's actually kind of a struggle now for antitrust to address the kinds of problems that I'm raising. Uh, and the reason is that the, um, the academics who influenced Reagan and the courts from then on, really, even to, the, to this day, only use antitrust when there's some product market that itself is very concentrated. So only if, you know, two giant um, companies, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, were to merge, right? So that's, that's going to create a soft drink monopoly, and then that's where antitrust gets, uh, kicked in. And it really has no, not really been used at all since the 70s or 80s to take on concentration of different kinds. And so right now, the, the Biden administration has been tr struggling to try to adapt antitrust to take on the big tech companies whose power and concentration, like Google and Apple and Alphabet, and et cetera, um, uh, their power and concentration comes from networks they control. Um, and they've not had a lot of success to date, although I think they're still trying, and I suspect they'll keep trying. Um, the same thing would be true here. While Vanguard and BlackRock, State Street have got a lot of um, stock, and they've got a lot more than anybody ever used to, um, they still don't really have a monopoly over money management generally. There's still lots of other mutual funds you could choose from, T. Rowe Price and Fidelity and go down the list. There's a big long list. And they're not quite at the level that antitrust law would kick in there. And so the only way that antitrust really traditionally would kick in is if you could show that their concentrated ownership was leading other companies that they own to collude or to fix prices or to do things that are illegal under antitrust law. And there's been a few moments where some of the companies have gotten a little bit in trouble. Um, some airlines got in trouble a few years ago. They mentioned that, that one of the index funds had, had encouraged them to think about um, whether they really wanted to have a price war. Um, but for the most part, traditional antitrust is it, 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 it no longer quite fits concentrated power that isn't directly affecting a product or a, a, a specific service that's being offered. So I, I do think antitrust is a useful tool and lens, and I, I hope my colleagues who think hard about antitrust law can figure out ways to adapt it to this problem. But, but I think this is a problem anyway. Like, even if antitrust doesn't fit it, I just don't think we're going to be comfortable with a dozen people controlling the economy to to summarize the book. And it's been suggested that if antitrust was proposed, there'd be a massive lobbying effort calculated to keep that from happening. There's a lot of money involved here, yeah. isn't there? <laughs> yes. And when this is part of the problem. I mean, on some level is 
the influence that concentrated financial power brings is not only over the direct assets they control, but also it means they've got a lot of money to throw at Washington or the state capitals. And that's part of their power. And that is a reason to worry that in that the country's ability to adapt to their very uh, existence is itself um, called into question by them and their their, their political influence. And so I, I, part of this book is meant to be a little bit of a wake-up call to civil society folks who are paying a lot of attention to particular issues like by you know the partisan divide and I, I get that in election um, fraud which I you know I think is overstated and but election denial which I think is understated so lots of things to worry about in the political sphere this is another one um, this is one where the concentration of wealth is um, unlike anything we've seen in a hundred years and we, we have been here before there have been moments in US history where for example, the insurance companies in the late 19th century got gigantic and started buying up every business. And the result was basically in every state, starting with New York, um, law was changed to limit how much insurance companies could buy. They just, they're not allowed to buy more than a very minor amount of stock of other companies. Uh, for the most part, they buy bonds, they don't buy stock. And, and I think Eventually, we're going to end up with similar kind of restrictions here, but it's going to be a struggle. And no doubt, they're going to use their lobbying power. Both of these industries are going to use their lobbying power to resist um, uh, things they view as threats. Because they're only raising money from what the law treats as large, sophisticated investors, aren't they able to not have to file reports uh, about their fundraising, uh, about their funds, and for the most part, the identities of their investors? Exactly. The, this was the, 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 um, the achievement that I mentioned in the, in, in the 90s of the private equity industry. They convinced Congress that, that, that as long as the investors that they were raising money from were large institutions, that they shouldn't have to make disclosures. We let the big institutions protect themselves. Now, anybody who lived through the 2008 crisis should already be rethinking that idea because most of the same major institutions that invest in private equity also invested in mortgage-backed securitization vehicles that were wiped out or dramatically impaired in the collapse in 2008. And so the idea that just because a pension fund has a lot of money to invest means they do not need the protection of the disclosure laws or the SEC, I think is a little bit of a fantasy. I think it was a fantasy in 1996, but it's been proven to be a fantasy ever since. And so I, I think we should go back to a model that says if you're raising money from what is effectively millions of people fact that it comes through a few small number of institutions that maybe have good people working for them, capable of protecting those millions of people, and maybe don't, I, I think we should go back to a disclosure model that at least presumes that uh, the millions of people need more than just uh, their pension managers to look out for them. Well, don't you say that earlier problems of 12 played a role in the lead up to the Great Depression? Uh, was that very different than what we're seeing today? Uh, 
it, 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 it was it was different in some ways, but quite similar in others. It was different in the sense that um, some of the laws that were put into place during the New Deal after the Great Depression are still there. So as I mentioned, insurance companies are still not allowed to buy a lot of stock. And so they haven't really gotten into trouble that way uh, during the last 50, 60 years. Um, banks, for the most part, like straight up, you know, banks, conventional banks, they're not allowed to buy stock of non-financial institutions. And so in prior moments in history, we've had these same kinds of problems emerge. We've had laws put into place to control them. And then they've basically worked okay. Um, the thing that's new here is index funds are new. They're in, in the sense of our history. They were really, they're really only about 50 years old, and they've really only been growing fast in the last 25 and private equity basically is about the same age. And so I just don't think yet the, the responses we had in the New Deal um, are really adapted well for the current moment, which is why we need to debate this. We need to think hard about new, new approaches to regulation of these two types of companies. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is John Coates. His book, The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything, published by Columbia Global Reports. Let's talk about some specific cases, people. Shirley Smith is a former employee at Art Van Furniture in Detroit and also a leader of a group called United for Respect. What did she say at a Senate subcommittee hearing a couple of years ago that was looking into how Art Van Furniture was taking, taken over by a private equity firm called T.H. Lee in 2017 and how that business completely changed under that leadership. Hello? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. She did. That was that you, you accurately summarized her testimony. She basically was quite negative about her firsthand observation of how private equity affected the, the company that she worked for. But it didn't um, affect any legislation. Well, no, not, no laws have been passed directly aimed at private equity in some time. But just as with index funds, we've got a bunch of bills that have been proposed and have been pending and are no doubt going to continue to be debated that are aimed at, at the industry. And I bet, this is not really part of the book, but I'll just speculate a bit. My bet is that when we have another financial downturn or when the rise in interest rates causes there to be a financial meltdown, um, that to the extent that private equity is caught up in it, which it probably will be because of how big it's gotten, um, that that will then provide a moment where the folks that are already looking to, to regulate the industry will use to try to intervene. Um, Senator Warren from Massachusetts, who used to be one of my colleagues at the law school at Harvard, um, although I've never talked to her about this topic, I should say in passing, she's got uh, a bill pending that would dramatically restrict private equity in various ways. Um, there have also been debates over the years about tax policy and tax law because private equity benefits from two kinds of tax provisions that most people can't really benefit from. One is that uh, the interest they pay on the debt they borrow to buy businesses is tax deductible. Hmm. And that 
that reduces how much they have to raise to buy a business. Uh, and the other way is that the returns they pay to their own professionals, so-called carried interest, is uh, treated as a capital gain and taxed more favorably than ordinary income that they pay to their um, uh, secretaries and, and messengers and the like. So the and, and most businesses can't do that. Um, they can't take advantage of that part of the tax code. And so those of those have been up for grabs many times. Uh, they've they've been close fights. I think the last time the carried interest debate came up, it it it, it, um, it almost passed by one vote. It failed um, in the Senate. And so that would be another set of things that I think are probably on the table over the next few years for serious debate in Washington. Um, as with index funds, I, I'm not personally thinking we should abolish this industry. I think they're they're probably doing a good job, as I mentioned earlier, in some situations. Um, I think more information would be better for the industry, frankly, to help them fight the other political battles. And I think it would help assure the public that when they are buying companies, they're doing a good thing and not the kind of thing that um, uh, that the furniture company experienced under uh, private equity ownership. Well, Peggy Malone, a nurse at the Crozer Chester Medical Center in Pennsylvania, told the committee about the changes that happened in her hospital since private equity took over. There's a, a lot of upset in this country, isn't there? I think particularly in sectors like healthcare, where don't assume typically that doctors are ruthless capitalists when we go in to visit them. You know, we might worry a little bit about overdiagnosis, maybe some tests they want to run that don't really need beer, but we don't really think of them as being the full on, uh, you know, gales of creative destruction, as, as is famously described of capitalism. Uh, instead, we think of them as caretakers for us, and they have professional pride, and they they are taught ethics to make sure they don't do harm as part of their uh, medical practice. I worry that private equity, because it is so tough in its business practices, gets in the way of that kind of professional judgment. And in those sectors, particularly, it really exposes the public to some risks that are currently not very well regulated. Now, these are major problems in our country, and yet I, I never see much co any coverage of this story on CNN, MSNBC, or anywhere else. Why hasn't this become a matter of current public debate, do you think? Well, here's what I would say. It does flare up occasionally. So to remind everybody, maybe, uh, when Mitt Romney ran for president, made some mistakes. That, Romney that Care. You're way. talking about Romney Care, which became Obamacare? <laughs> well, no, that was arguably a good thing that he had done. But I'm thinking of his comments about 47% of the country and all of that. But, but one of the things that he got hammered for uh, along the way was that he was associated with private equity. Mm. And a lot of stories came out about some of the buyouts that had been done either during or before or after he was uh, at the private equity firm he was at. And, and, I, and so that shows sometimes there is a kind of political awareness of private equity. But I agree with you, it doesn't come up very much. And I think part of the reason is 
frankly, uh, you know, this is I, I find this in my household. When I start talking about all of these issues, financial regulation, institutions, corporate governance, my kids' eyes roll and they kind of tune out after a while. And, you know, and it's not that they're not listening, but it's just, there's a lot of technical detail to just get to the point where you can kind of even understand what the debate is. And really, part of the reason I'm writing the book and get, trying to get it out there is to kind of get the public up to the speed because when one out of seven people works for private equity firm, we need to think about that. We need to think about the business model. It's a new business model. It's not one that's tried and true in American history. And we can't just ignore it. We need to start paying more attention to it. And the same goes with index funds, who, who I, I think better of in a, in a financial sense, just because they've year in, year out proven that they can out, outpace the market for most people. But I still worry about them, too. It's technical. You know, it's uh, it's not something that's easy to capture in a, uh, in a, in a soundbite. But you're saying it's something that's going to continue to be an issue and may wind up blowing up into a real news story. Is there anything else you want to tell us about in the, the uh, two minutes we have left for this segment? Um, I, the, the only thing I would say to add to what we've covered, been a great conversation, is, um, you know, I, just to be 100% clear, as a financial matter, do not take from this conversation that I'm against the idea of in investing to index funds. It's usually the best way to invest for most middle-class Americans. Um, and likewise, I'm not wholesale against either one of these two funds. The main thing I think needs to happen sooner rather than later, and this is both for those funds but also for the public, is for there to be more information expected of them and which they put out by way of regular disclosures. And I think if they did that, it would lower the, the problem. It would reduce the size of the problem I, I'm identifying. And I think it would just be independently a good thing. So that's my, my prescription for what it's worth. Well, you've testified before Congress. What kind of response did you get? Um, you know, uh, the usual, mixed. <laughs> Sometimes, well, on political on political lines, or were there other issues? Some people just more sophisticated than others. Both both the sophistication level varies, the attention span varies. Mm -hmm. I also think, interestingly, while there is a little bit of a partisan split to date, it's getting more complicated because, um, frankly, a lot of Trump voters, for good reason, worry about financial concentration almost as much as fairly left-leaning voters. And, and so I think this is a kind of a bipartisan issue that will probably generate some opportunities for real legislation as a result. Now, it hasn't crystallized yet, uh, and I don't know what form it would take given how divided our country is on almost everything. But um, when you asked me what kind of reception I got, I got genuinely interested questions from both sides of the aisle um, every time I've talked about this. So... That tells me it's not just a, a red, a red, blue, left, right um, issue. It's one that I think should um, matter to everyone. And I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show, John Coates. His book, The Problem of Twelve, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything, from Columbia Global Reports. Mr. Coates is the John F. Logan Professor of Law and Economics and Deputy Dean at Harvard Law School. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. We are going to be preempted tomorrow because of special fundraising. Right now, we are going through a major financial crisis at the station, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org. Remember, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Problem of 12, When a Few Financial Institutions Control Everything by John Coates. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20, $25 a month for as long as you wish. It allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more with with that tote bag. So if you tune in regularly to Let It Lopate, At large, why not let us know you appreciate what we do. Uh, Remember, we're the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your support is tax-deductible. As I said earlier, we're preempted tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Friday when David Schenk will discuss Into the Field of Suffering, his new book. We'll see you then. 